On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we are going to expose the lies from the medical community with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Exercising more, as everybody knows, if you're going to a big dinner, you want to work up an appetite, what do you do? You exercise. It makes you hungry. It makes you consume more. Along that line, exercising in itself is, is a relatively inefficient way to cons- burn calories. If you want to lose weight, you change your intake of what you're eating. Exercising, you can run a long time and barely make up for that Twinkie that you ate. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much for pressing play today. Uh, if you can learn more about me over at benazadi.com, I am your host, and I'm excited to bring on my friend, Dr. Robert Lufkin who has a brand new book coming out in 2024 titled Lies I Taught in Medical School and the Truths That Can Save Your Life. I was blessed to receive an advanced copy of the book, and we sat down for a conversation taking a deep dive into these lies. And there are a lot of lies (laughs) taught in medical school. What I really respect about Robert is that he went through the conventional path saw the writing on the wall, saw that he was told lies and even giving lies, and he made a pivot. He made a a 180 change. And now he's actually being proactive with his patients and with the people he's serving all across the world and helping to reverse really serious conditions, metabolic syndrome, and others. So the book is fantastic. You're going to hear the backstory of Robert, why he wrote the book. And then we're going to get into a few of these chapters. Uh, What I love about the book is that It's written in a way that the average person who's not really scientific could understand it, and the person who really wants the science gets it with all the references in the book. What I love is the chapters are broken down into different lies. So you have a metabolic lie, an obesity lie, and we kind of go over all the different chapters. I focused in on a few of those chapters during our conversation today. The metabolic lie, we talk about insulin, calorie counting, the diabetes lie, we discussed the common treatments for diabetes and what are the problems with that. We discussed fatty liver, heart disease, and many very important topics. So this is going to be a conversation you want to really pay attention to. Take a lot of notes. We're going to put detailed notes in the comment section or in the notes of the podcast down below. So make sure you check that out and use the resources. You could also pre-order his book right now. We have a link down below for that. Uh, and we'll put all of Robert's information in the notes down below. You're going to be astonished by some of the stats when it comes to diabetes specifically and some of the money being made off of people that are diabetic. It's unfortunate. But hey, we actually have the tools, these ancient healing strategies to prevent these conditions and reverse them. And we're going to get into all of that on today's conversation. All of our podcast interviews can be found on YouTube, video interviews, on the YouTube channel, which is Keto Camp on YouTube, youtube.com slash Keto Camp. So make sure you go check those out because those video podcasts are amazing as well. Before I bring on Robert, I want to take a minute to get to today's Apple podcast rating and review of the day. This five-star review comes from Melly Stubbs. Melly says, get well with keto. This is the first review I've written for a podcast. He listens and is open to learning. He is not dogmatic, and you can tell he's a humble person, which I appreciate. My top three podcasts I listen to are Keto Savage by Robert Sykes. We love Robert. Boundless Body Radio by Casey Ruff. We love Casey. And Keto Camp Podcast by Ben Azadi. 
Thank you, Ben, for your dedication to interviewing the best people for our learning pleasure. Melly, thank you. And you're listening to some really great podcasts. I'm very grateful you chose us because there's a lot of different podcasts out there. I'm grateful we made your top three. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and appreciating the conversations that I have on the podcast and uh, taking the time to leave that rating and review. It really makes a big difference. So thank you. I'm grateful for you. If you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so. Maybe I'll read yours on the next episode, give you a nice little shout out as well. I announced recently that we are hosting a five-day keto virtual event. It is 100% free. How would you like to learn from me and the Keto Camp team all about keto, carnivore, fasting, keto flexing? This is a PhD in metabolic health within five days. We live stream every day for two hours, five days in a row, where you get to learn, apply some of the principles, ask questions. It's going to be life-changing. This is our five-day keto kickstart challenge. And we have sponsors for this challenge that are giving away over $20,000 in free prizes. Some of the prizes that you could win are six months worth of coffee for free from Purity Coffee, a bundle of Paleo Valley products, a bundle of Redmond's Real Salt Electrolyte products, a bundle of Pure Form plant-based Omegas. We're giving away five Keto Mojo devices. We're giving away boxes of kinetic exogenous ketones. We're giving away Dr. Ben Bickman's health coach shakes. And we're giving away one-year free membership to our signature course, the Keto Camp Academy. All of that is valued at over $20,000. That is right. We're giving away over $20,000 in free giveaways. All you need to do to qualify for the giveaways and to learn from us for five days is to go over to ketocampchallenge.com or click the link in the podcast notes down below. Put your name, put your email, register for free, and join us when we start on October 2nd, which is Monday, October 2nd. And it's going to run all the way through October 6th. So Monday to Friday, we go live every day, same time, same place. I would love to have you there. This is great for beginners. This is great for those who have been doing this for years and want the science. We're going to cover it all. Learn from me, Coach Becky, Coach John, Coach Alina from the Keto Camp team, and some other special guests. I'm so excited for this. So join us over at ketocampchallenge.com. I'll see you there. In the meantime, let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Dr. Robert Lufkin is a physician, medical school professor at UCLA and USC, focusing on the applied science of health, longevity, and consciousness. Helping to reimagine the conventional healthcare model with evidence-based lifestyle modifications and other tools. Through this, we can prevent slash reverse chronic diseases, cultivate consciousness, and live life to the fullest. In addition to being a practicing physician, he is the author of over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and 14 books that are available in six languages. That is very, very impressive. He has given invited lectures and keynotes all across the world and was named one of the 100 most creative people in Los Angeles by Buzz Magazine. His latest book, which is what we're diving deep into today, is called Lies I Taught in Medical School. Here is Dr. Robert Lufkin. Dr. Robert Lufkin, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Ben, brother. It's great to be back and see you again. (laughs) Great to see you, brother. I was on your podcast, what was it, like a year and a half ago now, I think. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun, and you've been up to a lot of cool things ever since we had our conversation. You have a a brand new book coming out in 2024, which we're going to take a deep dive into. I was just telling you, Robert, I I read your book because your team sent it over to me, uh, the PDF version of it. I loved it. Speaking my language, I was like, yes, exactly, yes. (laughs) But here's the thing that I have the most respect for you when it comes to your career, you stand for and the why, why you wrote the book. I actually took an excerpt from the book. It's a very short passage. I'm going to read it. I'm sure you don't mind. It's very short. And uh, I want to start right here, right? So you are 100% in the medical establishment, is what you said. 
you were all for organized systems. And your background showed that. You served as a president of a major international medical societies, lectured worldwide, and been paid by universities, drug companies, and research institutions. So your credentials were clean. They still are, you say. Then, well, you say you were the unofficial spokesperson for the establishment. Then something happened where you developed four diseases. Let's start right there. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I was well into my career teaching at a uh, major medical school. Uh, things were, were going great. I just had two kids, and suddenly I came down with these four chronic diseases, which you know, I was very familiar with. And actually, my father had gotten those same diseases, and he died of them, but he was almost 90 years old when he died. And the problem was... I wasn't 90 years old. I, I had kids that weren't even in elementary school yet. And putting two and two together, this story wasn't going to end well, you know, because I'd already gotten the diseases at such a young age. So I went to my doctors and they, they said, no problem. We'll take care of it. They put me on a prescription drug for each one of the, each one of the diseases, which I took. And the symptoms got better. But uh, I didn't like the way this was playing out. So I, I began to, uh, out of largely out of self-interest, I began to like question what was going on. And I began to take a look at the literature. And there was a lot of new things that had come out in the last few years that were different than what I had been taught and, and indeed what I was teaching and what many of my colleagues still believed about, particularly about these, these chronic diseases, the four of which that I had and, and several other ones, and how modern medicine is really treating the symptoms of them and that these diseases, many of them share a common root cause that can be reversed and addressed with things like lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress. And that's what I began to do. I, I looked closely at my own lifestyle and I began to address these things. And uh, long story short, uh, I went back to see my doctors and they couldn't believe it. They said, you know, what's going on? What have you done? You know, you don't need these prescriptions anymore. So they canceled the prescriptions and I, you know, I, I turned the page on my life and uh, now I want to help communicate this message to other people, my colleagues, and most importantly, all of us out there who are on this this path to, you know, to health and, and eventually we're facing these chronic diseases because these chronic diseases are the diseases that will determine our own longevity and kill, you know, 80% of us die of one of four or five of these chronic diseases. Oh my gosh. So those, those four that you had specifically were hypertension. So you had high blood pressure, gout and arthritis, and you had abnormal blood lipids. And then you were pre-diabetic where your glucose level started to rise. A1C started to rise. So all four of those, and they might be five if we separate gout and arthritis, but let's say four or five of those are lifestyle related, right? And then you identified, okay, my lifestyle caused these symptoms, the medication were treating the symptoms, but there's a mismatch there because if lifestyle caused it, but medication is taking care of the symptoms, I don't think this medication is going to actually get to the cause because that's not what caused it. It was something else. So you started changing your lifestyle, but what were some of those first steps that you took and some of those individuals that you started studying? Because your book has, by the way, your book is called Lies I Taught in Medical School and the Truths That Can Save Your Life. The foreword is by Dr. Jason Fung, who my audience loves. You reference a lot of colleagues like Gary Tobbs and a lot of people in our space. So who are some of those first people you started studying? And what were those first steps that you took with lifestyle to help reverse these four conditions you had? And if I could, let me let me uh, emphasize one thing you said before yeah. is that the important fact that, that I wasn't aware of, it was a wake-up call for me, was that the approaches to these chronic diseases by mainstream medicine with, with these, the drugs, indeed the drugs that I was prescribed, treat the symptoms, but it's very important they don't necessarily treat the underlying cause. And it's not just those four diseases, as we talk about in the book. I was very surprised to realize that it's, it, 
it's not just those four diseases, but it goes all the way from obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, cancer, and even Alzheimer's disease, and ultimately even longevity, the anti-aging effects. And, and just to give an example, the number one cause of death in this country and, and really worldwide is uh, a heart attack, cardiovascular disease affecting the heart, right? And most people, when they get a heart attack, the heart attack is due to narrowing of the blood vessels due to this atherosclerosis disease that you know, you've talked about with your audience before. But the blood vessels get narrowed and then the heart doesn't get enough oxygen from the blood and you have a heart attack. And the treatment, the accepted treatment today is to go in and do an emergency procedure where you mechanically open up the blood vessels with a stent and that restores the blood flow. But the interesting thing about putting stents in, it doesn't actually, it may save you in the moment so you don't die immediately from that heart attack, but it has no effect on your overall death rate from cardiovascular disease. In other words, you will still continue to die of a heart attack at some point. And the reason is the stent only widens that one vessel and what happens is the underlying disease that is not addressed by the stents, and even as I argue in the book, is not adequately addressed even by statins, the underlying cardiovascular disease continues to progress. And the, those blood vessels get narrower, even where the stent is, but all the other blood vessels of the body continue to progress. So things like stents or even blood pressure medicines can lower the blood pressure, but they don't address the underlying damage to the blood vessels, which continue. So the key thing about these lifestyle changes are that they get at the root cause and they actually slow down or can reverse the diseases that modern medicine primarily treats the symptoms for with these prescription drugs that we get. They may be life-saving in the moment, but overall, we still move along the path to those chronic diseases. So sorry for the, sorry for the derailment there. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, it's very important to, to emphasize that because you're right. The, the symptoms aren't even necessarily, and you make the case for this in your book, the symptoms are not necessarily the problem. They are a result of the problem. And sometimes they could be really disconnected and far away from the actual problem. It's the body's check engine light. Uh, so we want to look at those symptoms as a, as a gift. Okay, this is your body's way of communicating with you that something you ate, something you did, maybe you smoked too much, maybe it was alcohol, whatever it was, something that you did caused an interference in your metabolism, which we'll talk more about the metabolism myth and lies, but something you did caused interference. Now I'm going to show you a symptom as a check engine light for you to figure out what that cause was. So medications and surgery and putting stents in, while some of these are very important short-term life-changing and life-saving, it's in, in that short term, but what happens long, it's not getting to the cause. It's kind of putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. Eventually, that blood's going to just flow right through that Band-Aid. It's not getting to the cause. So I, I'm glad that you distinguished the difference between symptoms and getting to the cause. And when we start going into your chapters, we'll go a little bit more into the specific situations with symptoms. Yeah, a great analogy people use is uh, I, I walk out and my floor is wet. I notice the floor is wet in my house. So what do I do? I get a mop and I mop up the floor and I'm, I'm treating the symptom. And what I don't realize is that the roof is leaking and and that's sort of what's happening with some of these chronic diseases with modern medicine, that we're, we're mopping the floor with prescription drugs in some cases when lifestyle changes could really alleviate the need for the prescription drug and ultimately even reverse the chronic disease. That's a perfect analogy. That's exactly it. Something that I, that I loved in your book <clears throat> that I have here in my notes is this feast famine cycling, which our ancestors have, we're, we're, we're hardwired genetically to go through periods of feasting, periods of fasting. So in other words, in your book, you talk about TOR, mTOR versus like autophagy. And there's a lot of back and forth between people in our space and longevity space. Like mTOR is bad for you. Stay away from it at all costs. Eat a plant-based diet. Stay away from protein. And then you have the other aspect. That same group is saying, get autophagy, get as much autophagy as possible. Then you have the other group saying too much autophagy is not good for you. You need more protein. You need more mTOR. So I want you to break down the difference between mTOR and autophagy and why there is a beautiful dance between the two. And when we could 
get a nice balance of both, that's when we're going to be in a good sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love mTOR. It's it's a fascinating molecule. It's 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 arguably one of the most important biological molecules ever known. But it was only discovered, really, at the beginning, almost of the twenty first century. And it's to understand its significance. It's actually present and conserved biologically over billions of years, all the way from yeast to human beings. And it does one thing. It's a nutrient sensing protein that tells the cells either to grow or repair. So if nutrients are present, largely oxygen, insulin, and glucose, mTOR gets turned on and cells grow. Our bones grow, everything grows. Uh, And then when food is not available, mTOR switches off and we hunker down into repair mode. We start cannibalizing our cells and we, you know, we make do with what we can, autophagy turns on. And that may sound like a bad thing, but actually it's a healthy thing for us once in a while to do this. And so a fascinating thing about mTOR is that it's now linked to basically every single one of the chronic diseases that we talk about in the book and the major chronic diseases that are affecting us today and determine our lifespan and longevity. So mTOR is actually a very powerful anti-aging mechanism. And it's not only the chronic diseases of aging, but also when we change mTOR around, we actually affect the phenotypes of aging, all the way from you know hair loss, gray hair, wrinkles, menopause, uh, hearing loss, periodontal disease. All these things actually slow down when we turn mTOR off into that autophagy mode. So back to your question, the role of mTOR is to basically protect the cell because if if food is available, you want the cell to turn on and grow. If the cell turns on and grows when food's not available, the cell will die and and vice versa will be a bad effect. So mTOR is very important for survival. It's the number one survival switch in a lot of ways. Over time, It's believed, and and nobody really knows for sure, but it's believed that mTOR in a normal organism switches back and forth because both are good. There's a balance there. In other words, sometimes turning mTOR on for growth is good, and sometimes turning mTOR off for autophagy is good. What's happened with human beings in our modern civilization, if you imagine a hunter-gatherer, you know, 50,000 years ago, mTOR will turn on when there's, you know, food available, and then maybe a few days will go by and there's no food and mTOR will be off and and you'll get a nice balance. Well, you know, as as everybody knows, about 12,000 years ago, that changed in, you know, what Jared Diamond and Yuval Harari says is the worst thing that ever happened to mankind, and that is the agricultural revolution, which made domesticated plants available and food to be stored. So it, we believe that it began switching mTOR. So there were fewer and fewer times when mTOR was turned off because food was available. You could store grains. And this hyper accelerated in the last 150 years when refrigeration was developed and processing. And then finally, in the last 30 years, ultra processed junk foods have taken over our food supply. And now people eat all the time, which turns mTOR on. And the types of foods they eat tend to be the types of foods that also turn mTOR on. Of the three macronutrients, primarily carbohydrates and glucose turn on mTOR. Protein has a mild effect and fat has very little effect on mTOR. So what we're seeing today is a situation where mTOR is turned on all the time, or at least an abnormally high amount of time in people. And based on the mechanisms that we understand about mTOR, there's a credible explanation of why turning on mTOR can drive all these chronic diseases that we've talked about and even driving aging and shortened life expectancy. Mm, Such a great breakdown. Uh, Would that explain why bodybuilders, for example, they live 12 years less than the average person. They're constantly in mTOR, eating every two to three hours, overfeeding to get a performance gain. But would would that make sense that a lot of bodybuilders that age rapidly are constantly stuck in mTOR and that might be why they age faster? 
Yeah, that's a very interesting point that wasn't clear in my mind until recently. The, the difference between performance optimization and longevity optimization. Like we may want to optimize our performance for, you know, NFL football or to run a marathon and we get our body at a high performance state. But that sort of performance optimization may not be the same and actually may be detrimental for longevity optimization, which is just living a long time. And we're starting to see that now. You know, the statistic you mentioned about bodybuilders is another you know, shocking statistic that's come out about uh, distance runners and sort of ultra marathon people who do a lot of activity. What we're finding is that these people have a higher amount of coronary artery calcium scores in their coronary arteries. And in addition, they also have uh, a type of myocardial fibrosis of or damage to the heart muscle that isn't present in people who don't do these these ultra marathons. So there's, it appears for exercise, there's a sweet spot in there. You know, too little is what most of us err on, which is bad, but too much is also bad. And it makes sense. You know, almost everything else you can do too much of too, but it appears with exercising and, and these performance optimizations, you may be trading off your longevity for a peak performance at one thing. Oh, so important to understand that. I know when I owned a CrossFit gym here in Miami uh, and back in two, 2013, when I was really getting into keto and fasting, you know, I would do seminars at the CrossFit gym and those members and, and our coaches, they did not want to hear that message because they were all about performance and gains and PRs and the fastest wad times. But I was trying to make it clear at that time, your performance in your CrossFit gym here might not be the same thing as health and longevity. Those goals are usually not synonymous. Now they could be, but most of the time you're sacrificing years off your life to perform short term. So you made that case right now with chronic long distance runners. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised, to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious 
healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. I recently had Dr. Sean O'Mara. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, yeah, he's great. He was actually just here at my studio last week. We sat down for an interview and one of his, you know, we we know we're the top five things that lead to visceral fat. One of them was chronic endurance exercise because high chronic cortisol levels and plus, as you know, doc, a lot of these endurance athletes are just eating a whole bunch of glucose and sugar just to kind of get through that uh, run or whatever exercise it is. So there is a difference there. But let me ask you this question. How do we know if we're getting just the right amount of mTOR versus autophagy? Let's talk first about the majority of Americans. Uh, 88% plus of Americans are metabolically inflexible, unhealthy. They probably need more autophagy than mTOR. So how do you gauge if you're getting enough of both? Is there certain lab tests like a fasting insulin we could look at, maybe IGF-1? How can we gauge if we're getting a good balance of both? Yeah, the honest answer uh, about mTOR and, and measuring it is we don't know. There, there, there is no test for mTOR, so we can't we can't check mTOR levels or check what it's positioned in. So we we have surrogates for it. We can look at fasting glucose levels. We can look at fasting insulin levels, HA1C, and those metabolic markers as well. But we really don't have a way to measure mTOR directly. So we just we you know we make inferences based on what we know. So when we're looking at fasting insulin, we're looking at A1C, you talk about these in your book, it's important to see where you're at, where your baseline is at. And if you find that your markers are out of range, they're higher, then you probably need more autophagy, less mTOR, right? But if you found you're in a good sweet spot, like I am, I'm I'm in a good range, then I could have a little bit more feast days than I would have had several years ago when I was trying to get healthy, right? So it kind of depends on where you were at in that spectrum. I want to shift the conversation to different chapters you have in your book, which I love the names of all these chapters. So you have chapters that go over specific lies that you taught in medical school, that you learned and taught in medical school. So you have the metabolic lie, the obesity lie, the diabetes lie. You have the fatty liver lie, hypertension lie, cardiovascular lie, the cancer lie, Alzheimer's lie, mental health and longevity lie. We don't have enough time on this conversation to go through all, but I want to focus on a few of them. So I want to start the conversation with the metabolic lie. And it's unfortunate because even to this day, Robert, we have fitness pros and dietitians and nutritionists giving that information that, look, if you want to lose weight, just eat less and move more. And you totally like disrupt that dogmatic way of thinking and show the evidence. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Like if somebody's listening and watching and they have somebody on their butt telling them to just eat less and move more, maybe they could share this clip with them. So it helps the person understand and the person uh, that's teaching this understand better. So why does that not work? Why, why do calories matter, but they're not as important as we were once thought uh, and taught? Well, first of all, whatever we're doing is not working. There's an epidemic of obesity and overweight. Up, 50% of Americans are either overweight or obese. So whatever we're doing is not working. And as you say, the conventional wisdom, which is still being taught by the medical school I go to and elsewhere, is if you're overweight, you exercise more and eat less. The problem is exercising more. As everybody knows, if you're going to a big dinner, you want to work up an appetite, what do you do? You exercise. It makes you hungry. It makes you consume more. Along that line, exercising in itself is is a relatively inefficient way to burn calories. If you want to lose weight, you change your intake of what you're eating. Exercising, you can run a long time and barely make up for that Twinkie that you ate. So that's the one thing. And then as far as uh, just eating less, it's problematic and it ignores the fact that weight and when we put on weight is driven by a a hormone called insulin and uh, insulin tells the body to add weight. And in fact, I know I can make anyone gain weight just by injecting them with insulin, no matter what they eat. And I can make anyone lose weight uh, or I know that type one diabetics who don't make their own native insulin, as soon as they stop taking insulin, will lose weight. So it's really not the total calories you eat, but it's the calories that tell the body to store fat. So certain calories, certain macronutrients, carbohydrates and glucose, I'm sure you've talked about this, I know, drive insulin. Protein doesn't much and 
fats practically not at all. So if I want to lose weight, I can eat 3000 calories of fat and protein and my body will not store fat. And it, it makes sense. You know, a, a glazed donut of, you know, same number of calories as a couple hard boiled eggs, our body handles them very differently as far as what causes me to store fat and lose fat. So I think those are the basic problems with eating more and exercising less. And there are more and more studies that document this in a, you know, at least in a limited way. Yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, Gary Tobbs, who you referenced in the book a lot, he's done a great job exposing that lie as well. Uh, It's not that we're denying calories, it's that we're saying it's not the most important thing to focus on. I think it's a huge distraction personally, takes away from hormones and like you said, insulin. And what you just mentioned about carbs, protein, and fat and the insulin response for that, it parallels into what you said about 10 minutes ago about carbs, protein, and fat, and how that is going to activate mTOR in different levels, right? You said the same thing. Carbs and um, sugar will activate mTOR and insulin a a lot more than protein, very minimal, and and fat, uh, barely anything, right? So it goes hand in hand what you just said with mTOR, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. So that, that's the lie, and there's a lot more regarding the calories in versus calories out dogma. Um, like you said, if you ate hard-boiled eggs versus some glazed donuts, you're, there's going to be a completely different response. You're going to feel very different. Your energy levels will be completely different with the eggs versus the donuts. One last point. Also, the hunger effect uh, that you've talked about on your show, I know, but uh, just not to be overlooked, if I eat carbohydrates, 100 calories of carbohydrates, I'm going to be hungry again and I'm going to want more, you know, that one potato chip thing. But if I eat 100 calories of cheese, let's say, which is largely, you know, largely fat, I can eat one piece of cheese and walk away. I cannot eat one potato chip and walk away. I mean, I'm a recovering junk food addict myself. I know the mental pressures of junk food and I, you know, I had to, I fight that battle with myself every day. Yeah, I, I could I could relate in some sense. I used to have a big battle with junk food as well. But you're so right. When you eat fat and protein, you activate these different hormones and chemicals that signal satiety, right? Leptin, cholecystokinine, peptide YY. You don't get that with processed carbs. That's why when you're done eating a big steak and they offer you a free steak, you're like, there's no way I could eat that. But they offer you some ice cream. Uh, sure, I got room for that, right? Because it doesn't activate <laughs> the same hormones. You could go at it with the ice cream. So that is is very important. Uh, And and I know you're a big fan of keto and fasting, especially because so many people have hyperinsulinemia and that'll, let's transition to that conversation, right? Um, You gave some really alarming stats when it comes to prediabetes and diabetes. You said one in three adult Americans are either diabetic or prediabetic and 80% of them don't even know it. So let's talk about that because that insulin is making a lot of noise for a very long time and it takes 10, 15 years before that glucose changes. So let's talk about what is happening when somebody is consuming high carbs and eating frequently. And although they might not be diagnosed with diabetes or pre-diabetes in a few years, what's happening to the beta cells in their pancreas? Well, I, I agree what you said uh, about the risk of pre-diabetes and diabetes, but I think it's even worse than that. My thinking has changed. I used to think that like many diseases, some people either got it or they didn't get it, you know, based on genetics, environment, that sort of thing. My thinking has changed. and It's based on some studies that have recently come out that one one study was a large number of non-diabetic adult Americans from the Framingham data and from the NHANES data. And they looked at their marker for their diabetes marker, their insulin resistance marker. They didn't look at fasting insulin, they looked at hemoglobin A1C, which is similar fact. And as everybody knows, you know, your hemoglobin A1C, once it crosses a certain threshold, like 6.5 or so, then your doctor diagnoses you as a diabetic and you he or she can charge for the visit and they can prescribe metformin and insulin and all that sort of stuff. But before that, they really can't because you're not you're not a diabetic yet. But what they found interestingly with these non-diabetic adult Americans was that their HA1C, in other words, their insulin resistance marker or their damage due to sugar increases with age. And the older you get, the higher your HA1C gets over time. It just creeps up like that. And 
the way I think about it now is that we're all on the path to type 2 diabetes. Formal type 2 diabetes is basically, it's in our future of all of us if we live long enough. It's sort of like gray hair. If I don't die of something else, I will eventually you know, get gray hair. I think type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance based on these numbers with the HA1C levels creeping up across the population with age, I think we're all on the path now to HA1 to diabetes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just means that it's suddenly not, well, I'm not diabetic. I don't have to worry about, you know, my carbs or I don't have to worry about mTOR or these other things. Well, actually, I think we all do in a sense, uh, one, for the reason that we're, we're creeping up our HA1C is increasing all of us over time with age, but also for a lot of reasons that turning on mTOR causes a lot of bad things in addition to diabetes, driving all the chronic diseases. Uh, so that study about the older we get, the higher our insulin and, and uh, A1C levels climb. I wonder if that's still the case for individuals who are doing what we do um, in more of like the biohacking longevity space, because I don't know what the frame of reference was with the, who, the patients they surveyed, because the average American, I mean, 88% plus, I would find that believable for those individuals. But for us, I find it hard to believe that it's inevitable before I get type 2 diabetes, if I live to 120, even though I'm doing all the things that I'm doing. So can we just uh, clarify whether you believe that is the case for all humans or for the majority of people who are not really doing some of the longevity things that we follow? Yeah, to be clear, the paper I'm citing and others I'm aware of didn't subdivide that just because they didn't have the data. So it was a population-wide study showing that HA1C was increasing. So what I take home from that or my inference is that absent changing our diets, we are all on this path. But as you say, there are other studies that show very clearly with people that eliminate junk food and eliminate carbohydrates from their diet, they can actually reverse their HA1C levels and bring them way down. So I would agree with you that while the general population has increasing HA1C levels, I think that we all have the, the choice to not go down that path if we pay attention to our lifestyle, junk food, and diet. Yeah, exactly. And that's why conversations like this in your book are, are so important. Because let's face it, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance are a lifestyle-caused disease, and they're all reversible. Type 1, we're not talking about that, but type 2 and insulin resistance, yes. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on. And I always get the question, hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses. And I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs. If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave KetoCamp podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash KetoCamp and use the coupon code 
KETOCAMP at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. You gave some stats that I was not aware of when it comes to some of the financial gain of people having diabetes, right? So in 2013, your book says sales of insulin and other diabetes drugs reached 23 billion. And that's according to data from IMS Health, which is more than the combined revenue for the NFL, the major uh, league baseball, and the NBA, uh, which is interesting. So let's talk about the way that diabetes is currently being treated. Uh, I know that when my dad had uh, type 2 diabetes, I didn't really understand it as a kid. I just remember my dad taking insulin and medication. And then as, a, as an adult, 22, 23 years old, I still didn't understand it until my dad got really sick and ended up suffering a massive stroke and then it left him paralyzed and he ended up losing his life, which raised a lot of questions for me, which is part of the reason why like, I'm in this space because I want to learn and, and prevent others from suffering like my dad did and I did. So I remember my dad was taking insulin and he kept gaining weight. And I was asking his conventional doctor because his doctor said he needs to lose weight to manage the diabetes better. And then he would gain weight. And I remember looking up insulin and it says it causes weight gain. So it didn't really make sense to me. Um, I know that there are different meds over the years that have come out. So there's some meds that lower glucose, that take glucose out of the bloodstream and pack it into different parts of the body, which show it's lowering your blood glucose levels. There is insulin, which does something similar. And then there are medications that cause you to pee out excess glucose. So let's, let's talk about the most common treatments and why there are, none of them are getting to the cause. Yeah. Well, the, the basically, if you accept the cause is just dietary, then all these other effects, all these other treatments are going to be downstream. And like insulin, it's for type 2 diabetics, it may save their life. In other words, preventing them from dying from an acute hyperglycemia episode of too much glucose. But ultimately, the effects of high insulin on our body drive mTOR and drive the chronic diseases that we see and ultimately you know, have higher risks of cancer, have higher risks of heart attack, have higher risks of Alzheimer's disease. So insulin's probably although it's life-saving for type 1 diabetics, for type 2 diabetics, if you can manage it with diet, that's the way to do it. Now, there, it's interesting. There are certain diabetic drugs that actually have a reputation for longevity and actually making people live longer. Insulin is not one of them. You know, insulin is life-saving for a hyperglycemic episode, but people don't biohack and take insulin because they know it basically has these bad effects. But there are a couple that we can talk about. One is metformin. Metformin, nobody really knows how it works. It, it works somehow on the liver to decrease glucose levels and your bloodstream will decrease glucose levels or your HA1C will change. I mean, recently papers have come out saying that no, met, way metformin works is on the gut microbiome. And, you know, it, it only works there. So it's Unlike some drugs like rapamycin, which is a very clean, targeted drug, metformin is a very dirty drug in the sense that it has many, many effects in many different areas. So it's not clear the mechanism, but the effect is lowering glucose. And it's interesting that there is uh, some evidence, some pretty good evidence that metformin increases the lifespan of certain organisms and possibly even human beings when it's taken. And why would that be? Well, if it lowers the glucose and doesn't have any other negative effects, then lowering glucose is going to turn mTOR off and it's going to be beneficial from that way. So why doesn't insulin lowers glucose too, right? Well, insulin actually turns on mTOR. So when you take insulin, you turn mTOR on, you drive hyperplasia, all these other things. There's one other drug called acarbose, which is a uh, diabetic drug. Diabetics take it, and it's an interesting drug because it doesn't doesn't really get absorbed. It doesn't work in our body. The place it works is in our gut, and the way it works is it blocks the absorption of glucose and carbohydrates into our bloodstream. So, people typically, uh, when they take a carbose, they do it after a carb meal that they have a lot of carbs, and that 
that prevents their blood from spiking and does that. But an interesting thing happened with uh, some longevity experts uh, began using acarbose with another by itself, and it actually increased the lifespan of mice that were taking it. And when they combined it with rapamycin, which is the most powerful lifespan extending uh, drug, which works incidentally by turning down mTOR, uh, when they combined acarbose and rapamycin, they got a dramatic compound effect of life extension, at least in this mammalian animal model. But it's to the point that now uh, human experimenters are taking rapamycin and acarbose off-label and metformin for its longevity effects. But a lot of these effects are through the manipulation of the glucose levels in our body related to you know what we're talking about with diabetes. Fascinating. You, you take rapamycin yourself, don't you? I do. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been taking that? Taking it about uh, three years. You're doing it for the longevity benefits because the science makes sense to you on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I am. Although rapamycin is FDA approved initially for organ transplants, which, you know, I don't have. But it's also FDA approved if you coat stents in like the heart attack stents, oh. rapamycin will stop the atherosclerosis from reoccurring. So there's, there's question that rapamycin taken orally may slow down atherosclerosis. You know, nobody knows, but there's a study there. Rapamycin is also FDA approved for several cancers. It stops for metastatic renal cell cancer and other cancers as a primary treatment for these cancers or secondary treatment. So rapamycin has effects not only on cardiovascular disease, but also on treatment. And there are now some animal studies where rapamycin actually slows cognitive impairment and reverses cognitive impairment in the mouse model to the point that the University of Texas and others are now doing studies with rapamycin for Alzheimer's disease patients. So cool. it, a, lot of, a lot of effects of rapamycin, not just for longevity, but by slowing down these chronic diseases. And then the phenotypes of aging, you know, in the mouse, rapamycin grows the hair back, makes the gray hair go away. In the human model, it, it reverses uh, skin changes with aging when you apply it as a skin cream. With hearing loss, it, it affects the cochlear cells in the animal model so that they regain hearing from age-related hearing loss. In menopause, in the animal model, rapamycin actually slows down menopause and restores ovarian fertility. And people are looking at all of these things in humans now with rapamycin. It's, it's a fascinating drug. This, this whole mTOR model, you know, we're just scraping the surface on it. And also, you know, for diabetes, obviously. Yeah, very fascinating. It's very interesting. So with insulin and metformin, both are lowering blood glucose. But the question is, where is the blood glucose going if it's not being burned off? So let me ask you that question. If they're not changing their lifestyle, and type 2 diabetics, and they're just eating the same way, which is uh, going to be a high-carbohydrate diet and eating frequently, but they're taking either insulin and metformin, where does the sugar go? So it's a good question. The carbohydrates, well, first of all, with the insulin, the sugar is uh, it's taken up by the cells and burned or stored as fat. And insulin, like we talked about, is the fat storage mechanism. With metformin, there's less insulin produced by you know the pathways like gluconeogenesis and stuff. So some of the insulin is coming from other sources even, but for whatever reason, it's decreased insulin that's released into the bloodstream. Metformin is not known to increase fat storage. So people taking metformin don't tend to get fat. I mean, the, the main side effect with metformin is GI distress, but that may be related to the GI effects of the metformin mechanism, which, like I said earlier, we really don't understand yet. But it's, it's interesting. Both drugs lower glucose, but one turns mTOR on and has a negative effect on chronic disease is a bad effect. The other one turns mTOR off, which is, which is the metformin, and that has longevity effects and presumably you know, health benefits for all these chronic diseases as well, possibly. Mm, yeah. And, and I, I know Dr. Fung says just giving a type 2 diabetic more insulin to treat their type 2 diabetes is like giving an alcoholic more alcohol to treat their alcoholism, <laughs> right? Just doesn't make sense. So yeah. we know that the goal is to reduce your, your carbohydrate intake and the frequency. 
So get more insulin sensitive because that's the mismatch there. Conventional dogma when it comes to type 2 diabetes is that we need to treat the blood glucose. That is the problem. But what we have found is that, no, no, that is a result of the problem. The real problem is hyperinsulin anemia. Uh, there has been too much insulin for too many years. Now the cells are full of sugar. The liver is fatty, which you have a whole chapter about fatty liver. The pancreas is now fatty. We need to actually start pulling fat from the pancreas, from the liver, from other cells. And we do that with a low-carb, keto diet, intermittent fasting, some of the principles you talk about in your book. Then you get more insulin sensitive, and that's how you're able to reverse these uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Is that a fair explanation, Doc? Absolutely. And, you know, in your program, uh, you know, with Keto Camp and all uh, fits right into uh, <laughs> right into doing this. Yeah, yeah, we love talking about this. I, I love the book. Like I said, you're speaking my language. Let's finish up with uh, one more chapter here. And that's uh, the chapter about the cardiovascular line. You've got to touch upon cardiovascular disease throughout this conversation, but let's go a little bit deeper. It's the most common question that I get on social media is, Ben, I started doing keto or carnivore and I'm down 70 pounds and I feel incredible, but my cholesterol is up, my LDL is up, and my doctor says I need to stop doing this diet. Okay, let's help them understand that it's a lot of moving parts with cardiovascular disease. And if you could just unpack some of those most common lies that we have been told with cardiovascular disease and how to understand their, those markers a little bit better. Yeah, this is a key point, the understanding of fat and its relationship to cardiovascular disease. And at the end of the day, you know, nobody really knows and intelligent people can agree to disagree. But the way I read the literature is that, first of all, even the American Heart Association now acknowledges it used to be people didn't eat eggs because they were afraid of dietary cholesterol. You could still go to restaurants in my town and get an egg white omelet, you know, to avoid the <laughs> egg yolk, you know. Yum. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so we now accept that dietary cholesterol doesn't affect blood cholesterol. And the question is, does blood cholesterol, how big a role does that play in your risk for primarily heart attacks because that's the number one killer. And, you know, the statistic is that half of people who come into emergency rooms for heart attack have a normal blood cholesterol. So, and, you know, and statins, of course, the elephant in the room, it's a trillion dollar industry uh, to lower blood cholesterol, these drugs. And we, we took, go into a lot of detail in the book, but basically the, I, I think, Statins are associated with a slight improvement in heart attack risk, and and lowering cholesterol is a lowers risk factor for heart attacks. But it's a very small factor when we look at other things. In particular, you can look at what's called the hazard ratio, and we have a picture of it in the graph, and you can see your your LDL cholesterol elevation. The hazard of that causing a heart attack versus something like type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance or metabolic disease are orders of magnitude higher or smoking even. All, there's so many other things that can cause the heart attack. So my position is that the danger of cholesterol has been overstated and we still don't really understand it enough to know and, and certainly you know, as you've talked about before, our nation has been on a, an experiment since the 1960s and 70s, a low-fat experiment where the health pyramid and the national recommendations were that we replace, we go on low-fat diets and we replace fats with basically sugar. And I think that, along with other things like seed oils and other factors, is to blame for where we are now with, with the junk food epidemic and our chronic disease epidemic. Great explanation. And it makes so much sense. Put your energy into these metabolic diseases like insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. Work on that. I agree. That should be the main focus. And I know Dr. Sean O'Mara is a big believer that also visceral fat and measuring your visceral fat with MRI. Like if you have very minimal visceral fat, even if you have high cholesterol or LDL, you're at very low risk because it's what these high um, concentration of visceral fat does to release these cytokines and different inflammatory uh, processes. But I, I'm with you. Um, 
there might be a slight improvement in um, reducing cardiovascular events with the statin. Very, very small compared to what happens when you actually get optimal insulin levels and optimal inflammatory levels. So for me, I know that my total LDL when I'm on keto or carnivore is usually high, but I'll get the LDL particles and I'll see that it's actually the larger LDL that is higher and the smaller is a little bit lower. And that to me, of course, we know through that's what we want to see. But also my inflammatory markers are optimal. My A1C is optimal. My fasting insulin is optimal. So even if my total cholesterol is high, I personally don't give a crap because I feel great and all my other markers look great. So I love that. And your book goes into some good details about Ansel Keys. And like you said, the low fat movement, the seed oil movement, and how that relates to all these metabolic diseases. The book was really well researched and done. How long did it take for you to write it? Uh, it was, well, it was uh, just gathering information over a few years since I started this, since I had these chronic diseases myself and, and uh, just sort of was born of that. I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait for my audience to get it. By the way, for those watching and listening, you can pre-order the book right now. We're going to drop a link for you to pre-order the book. It's going to be out in 2024. You'll get updates uh, along the way for those who do pre-order. And you also have a gift for them to get a free download uh, chapter, correct? Sure. Yeah, if you want a sample chapter, we have the first chapter that's available on my website, uh, both in audio form and in, in a PDF. You're welcome to take a look at it and, and see what you think. What's your website? It's robertlufkinmd.com. It's L-U-F as in Frank, K-I-N-M-D.com. And then just go to the lies part and there's a free chapter assigned there. Everybody get that. And I think you're going to be so inspired to want to pre-order once you read that. It's going to be, it's so good. I, I loved everything you put into the book because it's, it's one of those books. Here's what I think um, is the best way to use the book for my audience gift the book to your doctor, <laughs> like buy a copy for your conventional doctor who thinks keto is crazy and, and fasting is crazy. Cause you have a medical doctor, Dr. Robert here, who's talking about the things that you're doing and approving of them and giving the research. It's one of those books you want to use as kind of um, a talking point for your doctor. What do you think about that doc? Because a lot of doctors are closed off to the idea of doing keto and fasting. Could this be a good way to open up that door for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, I made a point to try and reference, uh, you know, when things are quoted there, we're referencing primary peer reviewed articles, not just review articles. So hopefully that would appeal to an open-minded physician who wants to look deeper at this area. Yeah, I think it will. So get the book. Uh, I have one more question for you. The question is about my favorite supplement. I think it's better than rapamycin in terms of longevity benefits, although I am intrigued about rapamycin. So I call it vitamin G, and I call it vitamin G because it's a vitamin gratitude. Uh, my shirt <laughs> has it right there, gratitude. So the question is, Robert, what do you have vitamin G for today? What are you grateful for today? Wow. I'm, I'm grateful to uh, have friends like you and be on this podcast. I'm, I'm grateful for my family and my kids, and I'm grateful for the knowledge that this information is changing and the possible benefit it can have on people's lives so they don't get these chronic diseases unnecessarily. Mm, so important. And you're doing a great job empowering people and helping them understand that it's not a chronic progressive disease. You got control. Your DNA is not your destiny. I cannot wait for the book to be released into the world. So for those who are watching and listening, share this episode with a friend. Robert, you also have a podcast. Share a little bit more about your podcast and your YouTube channel as well. Yeah, yeah. We have a video podcast that Ben was on recently and it comes out once a week. And I think we're going we're gonna to have this episode on our podcast as well. Uh, you've got such great questions as always, Ben. So uh, we're going to include it there. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm going to put that in the notes down below. So everybody go subscribe to uh, Dr. Robert's YouTube channel and podcast. We're also going to be speaking together at a conference, Biohacking Expo in February of 2024 in Miami. I'll put details down below. So Robert, and we'll do a round two in person. So can't wait to see you. Thank you so much for the research you put into your book and for coming on the show and educating us today, brother. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm a huge fan of your work and your show. And thank you for all the good that you're doing in the world. 
hope you loved that conversation with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Go pre-order his book. Um, you could get that by going to the link down below. We also put a link for that free chapter and everything that we mentioned, including his social media and his website. All of that is in the podcast notes down below. Please share this episode with a friend, post it on social media, get the message out there. Uh, if this conversation was valuable to you, please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review if you haven't done so already. If you want to watch the video format of today's podcast and all of our audio podcasts, you could watch the video version on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Keto Camp. And if you haven't registered for our upcoming free five-day virtual keto event, head over to ketocampchallenge.com, camp with the K. We'll drop that link in the podcast notes down below. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with Dr. Robert Lufkin and myself. I'll see you in the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.